1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week...
2: We have to stop our jobs from being stolen from us. We have to stop our companies from leaving.
1: Donald Trump has again been railing against globalization.
3: John O'Sullivan is here to tell us why we shouldn't be so down on trade. Right across the rich world, there's this kind of anxiety about the economic insecurity that trade seems to have wrought.
1: Sumeya Keynes discusses different approaches to food aid for Syrian
4: refugees. If you give them cash-based measures, then the diversity of their diet increases.
1: And finally, John Fassman talks about the business of mixed martial arts.
0: They're trying to build a pan-Asian sports property, but they're pursuing a policy of hyper-localism when it comes to choosing fighters.
2: But first, you want to approve Trans-Pacific Partnership. You were totally in favor of it. Then you heard what I was saying, how bad it is. And you said, I can't win that debate. But you know that if you did win, you would approve that. And that will be almost as bad as NAFTA. Nothing will ever well, top NAFTA. That, that is just not accurate. I... Uh was against it once it was finally negotiated and the terms were laid out. I wrote about that in... You called it the gold standard.
1: This week, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump went head-to-head in their first presidential debate. The themes of trade, taxes and job losses featured heavily.
2: You look at what China is doing to our country in terms of making our product, they're devaluing their currency and there's nobody in our government to fight them.
1: John O'Sullivan, our economics editor has written a special report this week on the rising antipathy provoked by globalisation. He joins me now. John, you define globalisation in three parts, really, as freedom of movement in goods, people and capital. Let's start with goods and trade. Why is free trade under attack?
3: I think it's largely a response to what you might call the China shock, so China's very sudden and quick rise in its share of world-manufactured exports and the impact that's had not just in America but also across Europe. So there's been some quite detailed studies in America, for instance, that links around about a fifth of the 6 million or so lost manufacturing jobs between 2001 and 2011 with competition from Chinese imports. A lot of the people that lost manufacturing jobs either became unemployed or just simply dropped out of the labour force altogether, often to, to sort of get disability benefits. So the sort of fabled flexible labour market that reabsorbs uh, workers quickly, it doesn't seem to have happened in the case of lost manufacturing jobs. It's in places where you've seen uh, lots of manufacturing job losses that you've seen the Rust Belt in America, some of the southern states, that you've seen some of the biggest support, for example, for Donald Trump.
1: You mentioned Donald Trump, and of course... A lot of eyes are on the election campaign this week. And in your report, you quote one anonymous observer as describing the choice between outright isolationism, should Trump wins, and if Hillary Clinton wins, a choice of managing to risk quite how far back one slides. Um, do you agree with that assessment? How gloomy should one be?
3: It's hard to be very optimistic in the case of, of really any of them winning. But clearly, uh, Mr. Trump has, been, has essentially come out with some very, very strong isolationist Sort of policies, if you want to give them that sort of gloss, saying he's going to put up uh, slap big import tariffs on Mexican goods, big tariffs for China's goods, which would pretty much amount, worry, to actually carry that through to, to America just pretty much ducking out of the WTO. That's pretty dramatic stuff. His opponent, Hillary Clinton, has actually been relatively cool on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a trade deal that America has negotiated with 11 other largely Pacific nations. She herself helped to negotiate the deal, but she is, on the campaign trail, sort of rather backed away from it. I don't think she's entirely kind of ditched it, but it's pretty close to that. So neither candidate has really said anything in favor of free trade and neither candidate has anything to offer other than a kind of either hard protectionism or soft protectionism. It's not so radically different in Europe. You've got lots of protests now against TTIP, which is the trade deal that America is negotiating uh, with the European Union. You've got politicians Quite big politicians turning turning away from it in in Europe, even in Germany, which likes to style itself as the export world champion so it 's not fair to say that it 's a particular american problem it 's right across the rich world there 's this kind of anxiety about the economic insecurity that trade seems to have wrought
1: another point in common between Europe and America, I suppose, is another of your freedoms, that of the movement of people with migration, a big issue in Europe, big issue in Britain over Brexit. And of course, one of Donald Trump's signature policies is to build a wall to keep Mexicans out. This seems to respond to a fear that migration is hurting people's living standards. Is that economically justified?
3: If you look at the the studies of migration, either from the point of view of, of sending countries or those that receive them, it's not obvious that there are big economic negatives from it. These studies are never telling you one thing or the other. But what's surprising is how limited the impact has been if you take the literature on a whole, that actually, in, in many cases, wages are either unaffected or are or are, it's the wages of, the, of a particular subset of the low skilled that are actually affected badly, and even then, not by huge magnitudes. So that's been one sort of surprise. In the European context, migrants from the rest of the EU generally have higher employment rates than the native population, so therefore they're contributing to the exchequer more than they are taking out.
1: Which brings us to your third freedom, that's the freedom of movement of capital. Capital controls used to be rather looked down upon by mainstream economists. Is, is that still so? Uh,
3: not anymore, no. There's a, there's a bit of an irony, which is that the one aspect of globalisation – Where there is the greatest agreement that there needs to be curbs on it, which is short-term capital flows, is the one thing there isn't people writing placards against. So the popular anger is against trade and migration, where the the net benefits seem to be fairly clear in favour of it. Um, the downside of, 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 of mobility, if you like, is, is short term capital flows, which can lead to local credit booms and busts, which can be very, very damaging. And this is something that's been acknowledged even now by the IMF, which in t- 2012, basically said that capital controls are, in some circumstances, uh, merited, where uh, authorities can't find an alternative to, to stemming these kind of dangerous flows.
1: You've described some some bright spots, if you like, from the point of view of the, the globalizers, but your report does have a chapter called Saving Globalisation, implying that the project is under some sort of life-threatening danger. Uh, do you expect readers to come away from it optimistic or pessimistic about the future of globalisation?
3: I think it's hard to be very optimistic given where we are in the politics of America, which is the most important economy in, in the world um so when you've got that what's happening in america in terms of the very cool to outright hostile view of free trade it's very hard to be super optimistic about the the world in general. The main free trade agreements that are on the table involve America, either with um, Pacific nations or with Europe, and they look to be now pretty much dead. So it's hard to be super optimistic about the prospect for future opening up. What I would say, though, is that although we've seen an increase in tariff barriers over the last four or five years, a lot of it related actually to concerns about China dumping on the world market. I think we should be absolutely clear. This is nothing like a return to the the 1930s in terms of protectionism. This is really a reversal of a very strong trend to opening up on trade. So I don't think we need be necessarily worried absent a Trump presidency. We're not quite sure what that would mean. But it's hard to be very, very optimistic on the next four to five years about sort of further opening up of the global economy.
1: John O'Sullivan, economics editor, thank you very much. So what is the future of globalisation? Will the protectionists win out or will openness prevail? Let us know what you think on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send us an email to radio at economist.com. We move on now to aid for Syrian refugees. The crisis deepened this week after bombing campaigns continued to ravage Aleppo following the collapse of a ceasefire. 4.4 million refugees have already fled to the neighbouring countries of Jordan, Turkey and Lebanon. The majority live outside refugee camps, and that puts a strain on agencies aiming to deliver food aid. Sumeya Keynes, our economics correspondent, was recently in the Middle East reporting on this topic. Uh, Sumeya, I suppose we're all familiar with the harrowing pictures on television of refugees lining up with their bowls to receive handouts of food aid is that really still how it works?
4: The short answer is no. So back in the mid 2000s, all of the aid given out by the World Food Programme, which is the world's biggest distributor of food aid, uh, was in food in kind. So, you know, sacks of flour or rice or lentils. Whereas now around a quarter of its aid is in the form of cash based help. Um, So that means vouchers or these things called e-cards or one cards. And how they work is that Essentially, refugees get given money, but money that's restricted, so they can only spend it on food, uh, because after all, the World Food Programme is a food aid agency. This cash-based help is is very different from this food in kind.
1: Why the change?
4: Well, first of all, it's just really expensive getting physical food to refugees, particularly when you've got you know millions of refugees embedded in communities in uh, Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey. Um, it's much cheaper if you essentially give them the cash um, and let the market do its work. And you also get the added benefit of that money kind of swilling around the community, maybe it makes the locals happier about having so many refugees. So the World Food Programme in Lebanon calculated that for every dollar that they gave in cash-based measures, that boosted the food product sector by around $1.51. So you're you're getting these kind of positive benefits, whereas if you give people food, then the kind of money trail ends there.
1: You say letting the market do its work, but Isn't this also distorting the local market because it's flooding it with cash, must presumably push prices up?
4: The biggest distortion comes from the fact that the money is restricted, so that the refugees can only use the money to buy food in certain approved supermarkets um, and only certain kinds of food. So I went and met some some refugee families who were getting this aid and, and one woman I talked to said that she she didn't want to bring her children to the supermarket because uh, they always tried to put biscuits and sweet things into the, to the trolley but she's not allowed to use the money to spend on those things. The distortion there is because the refugees can only spend the money in certain shops and the World Food Programme only has contracts with a certain number of shops that essentially gives those shops a guaranteed market, right? So the thing you worry about is those shops pushing up prices. What the people at the World Food Programme have to do is they have to go every week and or every month and spend a few hours checking up on all the prices in the in the shops, which is, is quite distortive. So that's the cost of having this restricted money, which can only be spent on food. You
1: mentioned three sorts of cash-based aid, vouchers, e-cards, and simple cash. Which is proving the most effective?
4: So first of all, vouchers prove to be a kind of fairly ineffective uh, way of getting out aid. I mean, the, the logistics of getting the vouchers to the refugees is, is quite difficult. Uh, they had to queue for hours and hours to get them. So the e-cards are actually the, the main method being used um, at the moment. So the World Food Programme, I think, is giving around 1.1 million refugees a month aid via these restricted e-cards. So they have been experimenting with cash, and generally the kind of early evidence suggests that the refugees appreciate being given the choice, the freedom to spend the money on whatever they want. So kind of widespread, huge, huge scale programmes giving cash for food haven't been tried out so much yet. But this week, there was this big announcement that the World Food Programme in Turkey was going to be working in conjunction with the European Commission and the Turkish Red Crescent. And the World Food Programme is going in this new direction. It's going to implement a huge, I think, 348 million euro programme for giving unlimited, unrestricted cash help refugees, still by the cards, but you know they can take it out of an ATM and they can spend it on whatever they want.
1: Before that, are there data on how effective cash-based schemes have been so far on what they've done for refugees' nutrition and so on?
4: Yeah, so there haven't been that many studies comparing unlimited cash and the vouchers. But there have been studies comparing the cash-based help and the food in kind. Uh, And they find that if you give people food in kind, then that boosts the number of calories they consume. So you'll you'll get more energy to the refugees. But uh, if you give them cash-based measures, then the diversity of their diet increases.
1: Samir Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, we move on to Asia, where a battle between East and West plays out in the world of mixed martial arts. John Fassman, our Southeast Asia Bureau Chief, is on the line now to tell us more. John, for the benefit of those of us brought up in the world of football, or as you would call it, soccer, what are mixed martial arts?
0: Well, mixed martial arts is a style of fighting in the ring, much like boxing, that takes bits from different martial arts, really. So it's two competitors who fades off with uh, with boxing gloves. So there's a sort of boxing element to it. But there's also a lower body element from uh, Muay Thai, and there are sort of grappling elements of, of judo as well. It does what it says in the tin. It's a mix of different martial arts as well as boxing.
1: And how big is it? I mean, it's, it's nothing like on the scale of the English Premier League, is it? Which is Asia's most popular television sport.
0: No, it's not quite there yet. This league, uh, one championship that I wrote about this week, has staged events in... 11 countries and is on TV and in many more than that. But it's still really in its infancy. But what the league has going for it in its mind is that Asia is the home of martial arts and martial arts is a fundamentally Asian pursuit. And so their feeling is there's a huge potential um, across the continent to become fans of this sport.
1: And how is it trying to win that market?
0: Instead of trying to sort of get behind a single fighter, uh, which is what promoters in the West often do, they're developing fighters in each country in which they operate, and they do the best they can to have those fighters fight in front of their hometown crowds as much as possible. So I went to see in May the Women's Atomweight Championship, which was held in Singapore and was won by a Singaporean fighter. One championship's male heavyweight fighter, uh, Brandon Vega, is Filipino American, and he's going to be defending his title in Manila. So they're trying to build a pan-Asian sports property, but there's pursuing a policy of hyperlocalism when it comes to choosing fighters.
1: And are these local fighters becoming regional stars, or are they more low-profile than that?
0: Uh, they are regional stars. Brandon Vega is, is mobbed when he travels in the Philippines. Angela Lee, who is the women's championship champion, is, is quite high-profile in, in Singapore. And so they really are stars in their home countries. Now, I don't think there's much of a, of a sort of cross-border fandom yet. Uh, But that's not really what they're going for.
1: John Fassman, thank you very much. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. In London, this is The Economist.
3: Traffic jams,
4: tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.